and it's a privilege to be here with you all today. Um, thank you to Pastor Adam for extending this invitation to me. He's been um, so uh, crucial to this whole week, been uh, answering so many questions and been so patient. Thank you, uh, Brother Grant and Brother Brady, for reaching out to me and uh, making sure I was all set to go today. Um, you know, this is, this is a weighty moment. It's, it's really, when we think about it, it's, it's astounding. You came here today expecting to hear a word from the Lord. And when you came, the, the, the mystery of it is not only does our holy God condescend to us, reveal himself to us, but he does so through the medium of human messengers. So this is, this is truly a remarkable moment. So we have to pray. Would you please join me as we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people. Father, as we um, embark on, on this journey to hear a word from your word, Father, we ask that you would sanctify us by your word, that we would leave this place with a better understanding of who you are, that we would love you more, we would love your people more, and Father, you would draw us ever closer to yourself. Please, Lord, um, hide me behind your cross. May they see Jesus, and may they understand your word. Strike anything from memory, Lord, that does not accord with your truth. Father, may you be glorified in this time. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, um, please join me in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Again, that's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Um, and as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm originally from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, my, I come from a, a Christian home, a Christian background. And um, while I was, uh, I was going home from work the other day, um, I actually called my mom and I was seeing a getting an update, seeing how they were doing, and uh, um, I asked her the story about how I was born. Um, just, just trying to get a refresher on that. My parents, um, when, when I came into the world, they were, uh, they were really nervous going into the hospital. They were afraid that they were um, going to come home with the wrong baby, uh, especially my dad. So my mom, you know, she tells me the story how um, she's, uh, they give her the bracelet, and um, the doctors come and take care of me, and you know, they check your bands, you know, relentlessly, so that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, in the course of that, when they brought me home, I looked nothing like them. So they, there is a legitimate fear that they got the wrong baby. Um, I was, uh, imagine my um, distress hearing this as an old teenager. Um, so uh, if you came to me, uh, my mother, she, she still says I don't look anything like her. If you came to me and you said, um, Nathan, who are your parents? And I pointed to a crowd of adults. How would you tell who my mother and father were? Well, you might be able to tell based on the character that we share, right? So my mom, she is, um, she works really diligently, really um, hard. My dad does so too. I've kind of picked that up from them. My mom is extremely outgoing. My dad's more introverted. I, I have my um, extroverted sense from my mother. Um, 
My mother can also at times be an overthinker. Um, if you ask my wife or my in-laws, I am definitely an overthinker. Um, my, my dad, uh, he frets when he leaves home that he left the coffee pot on. So he has to go back home. And my poor darling wife has been the subject of that as well. Um, so you can tell who my parents are based on our shared similarities and our shared character. In the same way, how can we tell that we are related to God? How can we tell that we are God's children? Well, we tell by the same characteristics that we share. So open with me to 1 John 1.5. Again, that's 1 John 1.5. And today we're going to see... Excuse me, I'm turning there myself. I'm going to mark it in my Bible. Today we're going to see that... Christians have fellowship with God as they walk in the light, as God is in the light. And Christ renews that fellowship for them. So as we go through our text today, I'm going to mark it out in three sections for us. Verse 6, God is light. God is light. And then in verses 6 to 7, fellowship in the light. Again, that's fellowship in the light. And then verses 7 to the end of, uh, or sorry, verse 8 to verse 2 of chapter 2, what happens to fellowship when we sin? What happens to fellowship when we sin? So before we dive in, we need to get a sense of why is John writing this letter? Well, as, as we read the epistle of 1 John, we get this sense that um, there were some people in the church who started believing some uh, heretical beliefs. Um, they had. They thought that they needed this extra knowledge to follow God, and th- they didn't need the words of the apostles. They didn't need what the Bible said. That wasn't sufficient. They had to have some extra knowledge, and so they start teaching heretical beliefs like Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, um, and they start leaving the church. They break fellowship with the apostolic church. And then they're telling these Christians, you need to ditch the Christian faith and follow us. We know how to really have fellowship with God. So John hears this. He's distressed at this. And so he's writing this letter to set the record straight. So in verses 1 to 4, John comes in and says, guys, I was an eyewitness to the gospel. I walked with Jesus. I saw God's truth manifest in the flesh. And then he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will have fellowship with us, with the apostles, with the broader church, and then by extension, have fellowship with God. So that's John's major concern in this letter. How do we have fellowship with God? What does that entail? And that leads us to verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So this is the the message that John has mentioned in verse uh, 1 to 4 that he's about to proclaim to the church. And remember, he's proclaiming this so that we can have fellowship with the apostles, with the broader church, and by extension with God. But notice what John says about this message. It's from 
him, meaning from God. This isn't a message from John. John didn't make this up. It didn't originate with him. He's saying, I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you what God told me. And you can trust me, remember, because I'm an eyewitness. I've seen all these things. So when we read the book of 1 John, we need to realize this is scripture. This is God's word. And so it's authoritative for us. It demands our obedience. Are we willing to submit ourselves to what we're about to hear? That's the question John's putting on the table. So this is the message that you've heard from us, that we announce to you, that God is light. Now, when you read the, um, John's works, right? John wrote a gospel, the gospel of John, and then he wrote three letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Whenever you read John's works, you want to pay attention to some key words that John uses. So light and its opposite, darkness. Um, truth versus a lie. Love versus hate. Um, hearing and keeping the commands of God. So as, as we read um, in John, it may help to underline those words in your Bible or, or circle them so you can see how John develops these ideas in his writings. So, so what does it mean that God is light? Well, at the bare minimum, it means that God is completely and morally perfect. He is radiantly righteous, perfectly good. There is no evil within God. He is truth. He is light. Right? And this um, pulls on images from uh, the John's gospel. Right? In the very opening John's gospel, we hear that the word, um, Jesus was uh, the light. Right? Um, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So God is light, moral perfection. But John can't stop there to, to really help us get our hands around this idea. He emphasizes the converse. If God is light, then there is no darkness at, at all in him. If you see that no darkness at all, the translation is trying to get a sense of what the Greek is trying to communicate. It's emphatic. There is no darkness in God absolutely at all. So what does darkness mean? Darkness, if, if light is moral perfection, if it's God's goodness, his righteousness, his um, being perfectly good, then darkness is evil. It's often used of the world and walking in ignorance, rejecting God's truth, walking in sin. There's none of that in God. God doesn't sin. God doesn't make mistakes. There is no evil thought, no evil inclination in God. He is perfectly good. So what does this mean for us? You can trust God. This is a God who is worthy of our total admiration, of us singing songs of worship to him, and of us following him. And if God is completely good, then everything that proceeds from him, his commandments, his word, is also completely good. 
So in word of application, are we willing to listen to the Bible? More specifically, are we willing to submit ourselves to what we're about to hear in the lesson of 1 John? Are we willing to submit and obey God? Because he is absolutely worthy of your obedience. This is a God of complete goodness who will not lead you into paths of death, but will make known to you the paths of life. Now moving to verses 6 to 7. What does it look like to have fellowship with God? Fellowship in the light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. So remember, John is responding to some of these things that um, this heretical group has told the church. So most likely what these guys are thinking is they're saying, yeah, yeah, you have to have um, you have to be sinless in order to have fellowship with God, right? Sin separates us from God. It ruptures our fellowship with him. If you were there in um, adult Sunday school today in Genesis 3, we talked about how after Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They lost their fellowship with God. They could no longer walk with him in the cool of the morning in the garden. So, that, so these guys are drawing the right implication. Yeah, we have to be sinless in order to have fellowship with God, but they arrive at that conclusion by the wrong means. They say, after we, you know, we got this special knowledge and we started following God this way, we've never sinned. We've never failed. We've never blown it. John is saying, if you say that, if you say you have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness, you're lying. So John's looking at their character and he's saying, you're saying you have fellowship with God, but your actions say otherwise. You're walking in sin. These guys were rejecting the fellowship of the church. John is going to talk extensively in this letter about loving your neighbor, loving your brother, not hating him, not spurning his needs. So it might be that these guys were really mistreating their brothers and sisters in the church. And John is saying that lifestyle is inconsistent with the Christian walk. Christians cannot walk in sin, and claim at the same time to be walking with God. So John is saying, if you say you have fellowship with God, you cannot walk in sin. Because if you do, you really lie. With your words and with your actions. And you don't practice the truth. You're not, what he means by that is you're not living your life according to how God has revealed your your life to be lived in the Bible. God has told us what he demands from us. He's revealed his truth, chiefly in the Lord Jesus. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Walking in the truth means following Jesus in obedience. So John is saying, if you reject God's word, if you're rejecting God's people, you're rejecting the teachings of Jesus, then you aren't going to walk in obedience to God. You're going to walk in sin. And you're not going to have fellowship with God. So that's what Christians aren't supposed to do. Then what are we to do? 
Well, let's look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is saying, if we walk in the light, meaning if we will walk in obedience to God and his commandments, just as God himself is in the light. So right, so if we walk in the way that God has ordained us to walk in his, in his word, then we have fellowship with one another. Now you may pause and say, wait, time out. I thought the whole point was having fellowship with God. What's John getting at here? Well, I, I think that's implied. If you're going to walk in the light, if you're going to walk in obedience to God, just as God is in the light, then John is implying, yes, you're going to have fellowship with God. But John is also saying to have fellowship with God, that necessitates you also have fellowship with other saints. You cannot walk in fellowship with God and at the same time reject his people. You can't walk in fellowship with God and at the same time reject the church. The church. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if that word there that John uses, cleanses, that's an Old Testament idea. That, that pulls from the Old Testament where um, and if you were a Jew and you wanted to be among God's people, you wanted to go into the temple and you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to be ritually and morally clean. And you could be made unclean by either coming into contact, like physically touching something that was unclean, or by sinning. In that sense, in that sense you were ritually unclean, and before you could engage in fellowship with God's people, enter the temple, you had to leave. You had to go outside the camp. You had to leave the city. You had to engage in... Um, a ritual to cleanse yourself, like a, a practice prescribed in the Bible to cleanse yourself, and it typically ended in a sacrifice, an animal that would die, shed its blood, and by that you were made clean, and you could re-enter the fellowship of God and the fellowship of his people. So John is now saying, you don't need sacrifices anymore, right? We don't sacrifice animals and bulls and goats on Sunday. Rather, John is saying, the blood of Jesus now cleanses you from all sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for your sin, and everyone who trusts and believes in Jesus is cleansed. And because of that, they can have fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. And notice what John says at the end of the verse. Cleanses us from all sin. All means all, friends. There is no sin that is more potent than the blood of Jesus. There is no failing that Christ's blood cannot atone for. Now moving to verses 8 to verse 2 of chapter 2. Well, now we come to the question of John has introduced the topic of sin. So what happens, John, if I do sin? What do I do then? Is God done with me? If, is fellowship done? Am I, can I not have fellowship with God's people? Well, um, 
I, I told you that story of me and my parents at the hospital. Um, and uh, you may have heard of the phrase, the terrible twos. Um, that phrase was invented because I was a child. Um, uh, my parents and I, we got off to a rocky start. My mom will tell the story of I was willfully disobedient as a child. I would sit by an electric outlet, and I would poke my finger in. And so my mom, as out of loving concern with me, would say, don't do that. And she'd move me away. And I'd go right back to the electrical outlet and keep poking my finger in. My mom says, it was so bad, Nathan, that I would turn and you would wait for me to be looking at you for you to then poke your finger into the outlet. Willful disobedience. Now, in that moment, did fellowship with my mom completely cease? Was my mom, did I ever stop being her son? No. Did she ever stop loving me? No. Relationship was still there, but it was strained, right? I didn't enjoy a warmth and an intimacy of relationship with my parents as I would have if I had obeyed. It's the same way when Christians sin against their Lord, against their heavenly Father. We're not cast out. We don't lose our salvation. We don't believe that. But that that relational intimacy that we have with God is ruptured. It's strained. So what do we do then if we sin? How do we re-enter and restore that strained relationship with God? Let's look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So if, if we deal with this the way the heretics were, and they were saying, well, we just don't sin, John. After having this extra knowledge, after following God, we, we just never blow it, right? This idea of perfectionism. We've just come to a point where we never sin. John's saying that, that doesn't work. You're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. The truth isn't in you. You're not living according to the truth. You're showing that you don't know the truth, you don't understand it, and so you're not walking by it. John's saying you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't just say, well, I'm going to will myself to never sin. I'm just going to be perfectly obedient. I'm going to keep and earn God's fellowship. I'm going to keep and earn God's love. John's saying you're not going to do that. You're lying to yourself. And you're not understanding what the Bible is trying to communicate to you. Well, John, if that's not the solution, then what am I to do? What is my hope? Look at verse 9 for us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is John saying? How you deal with with your sin, when you fail, how does that relationship get restored? Well, look back at verse 7. If we, or, uh, yeah, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, the, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We look to Jesus. 
When we sin, when we break fellowship with God, we look to Jesus to restore our relationship. How do we look to Jesus? How, how do we trust Jesus? How do we do that? What does that practically look like? Well, in verse 9, John says that looks like confessing your sins. When we sin, there's always a temptation to keep it in the dark. To continue to walk in darkness. We're afraid. What's going to happen when I expose this? What's going to happen to my reputation? What's going to happen to my relationship with others? John is saying we need to confess. We have to expose this and bring it out into the light. Confession entails going to the Lord Jesus and admitting, I've sinned. So it's obedience to God's word. It's calling sin what God's word calls sin. I'm not going to excuse this. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. God calls this sin. I call it sin. And because I'm calling it sin, I'm admitting it's wrong. This is not correct. This is not how God expects me to walk. So if that's wrong, I'm not going to do it. Confession entails repentance. It entails turning away from walking in darkness and returning to walk in the light in obedience to God. Well, what do we do? What happens to my reputation in that moment? How do I know God's going to accept me? How do, how do I coax my heart into obeying this command? Look at what verse 9 says. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does it mean that God is faithful? It means that God has a long track record of forgiving and cleansing his people when they confess their sins. And that track record does not stop with you. You are not going to be the exception. If you confess your sins, there is a long line of God's attested faithfulness in scriptures and in the life of other saints. That he is going to forgive you. And not only will he forgive you because he's faithful, but he's also righteous to forgive us. That word righteous could also be translated just. God is just. Now, have you thought about that? God is just, and so he has to forgive you your sins if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus? All who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, he atones for their sins. He's already paid for it on the cross. He's taken the wrath of God for your sins when he died on Calvary. Therefore, God can't punish you again. God cannot play double jeopardy. For God to uphold his justice, he must forgive you. Because Jesus has already paid for your sins. This is the entire argument Paul is laying out in Romans 1-3. to How can a just God justify wicked sinners? Paul says, because of Jesus. What he did for us on the cross. So because God is just, he will forgive you. And because God has a long track record 
of forgiving our sins, he will forgive you. So maybe you're, you're here today, you're a Christian, you've confessed your faith in the Lord Jesus, you've believed and you've repented, and you're harboring some unrepentant sin. You feel it. And you feel the rupture between your relationship with God, you feel the rupture between your relationship with others. Hear this word from 1 John 1.8. Confess your sins. Accept the forgiveness. Well, Nathan, how do I coax my heart into doing this? I want, I want to be obedient. I want to confess, but I'm scared. What's going to happen? How do I move my heart to be obedient, to confess, to have that relationship restored? I think it looks something like this. If I don't confess... I continue to walk in darkness. My relationship with God is strained. My relationship with the church is strained. I'm, I continue to walk in sin and not in light. Sin just isn't worth it. But obedience is. Following the Lord is. Relationship with the Lord is. And God has promised me that he is faithful and he's just to forgive me and cleanse my sin. So I'm going to believe these promises. I'm going to act on faith in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to believe what Jesus is telling me and I'm going to confess. I'm going to confess to the Lord Jesus and if need be, I need, I'm going to confess to the person I've wronged. And I'm going to trust these promises that there is forgiveness and there's cleansing for everyone who repents of their sin. We come now to verse 10. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 10 is roughly parallel with verse 8. They're, they're saying pretty much the same thing. John is just turning the diamond a little bit. So if we say that, well, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can do this. John says... You're not only deceiving yourself. You're not only showing that you don't walk in the truth. You're showing that you're calling God a liar. That his word is not in you. God has already revealed to you how to restore that fellowship. How to, what, how to address your sin. And you're rejecting that. That's what he's saying to these false teachers, and that's what he's saying to the church he's writing to. If you go down that path, then you're rejecting God's word. You're calling God a liar. You're saying you're not trustworthy. I don't believe what you're telling me. And you show that you're not walking in accord with God's word. You don't have it abiding in you. You're not meditating on it. You're not hiding your, his word in your heart. You're rebelling. John says, don't do that. Confess your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus and be made clean. Moving to verse 1 of chapter 2, John says, my little children. Do you, do you hear that pastoral tone, that gentle word, that loving concern he has for his church? It's, it's like when you see that little boy, that little girl in church, and you bend down and you say, hi, sweet pea. Hey, baby, how are you? Hey, little one. It's a term of endearment and love 
and affection. And he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John says, I don't want you to not have fellowship with God. I don't want your relationship with God and with us to be strained. I don't want you to walk in paths of darkness. I don't want you to follow these guys who are spewing lies. I don't want these bad things for you. Well, John, what what happens if I did sin? You say, I don't want you to sin, but what happens if I do? And John ushers a gentle tone, a pastoral, loving remark and says, if anyone sins, if this does happen, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. The picture John is painting here is the same Jesus who died on the cross, who ascended into heaven and reigns as the glorious king of all creation, who will return to judge the living and the dead, now stands before the Father and pleads for you. Notice the credentials of your advocate. Jesus Christ. I listened to one of Pastor Horbach's um, previous sermons, and he noted that Christ, it's not a last name. Right? It's, it's, not a, it's not something we just stamp on at the end there. It comes from an Old Testament term. <coughs> Excuse me. It comes from, it's a translation of the word Messiah, the anointed one, the servant of the Lord, the one appointed to do the task of the Lord. This is Jesus, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes, dreams, and expectations. Everything the Old Testament points towards, that's Jesus. And not only is he your Messiah, he is the righteous one. The one who lived in perfect obedience to the Father. The one who perfectly kept all of his commands. Whose death, because he was sinless, could atone for your sins. He was the perfect and spotless lamb. And because of this, he can stand before the Father and plead on your behalf. Well, on what basis can Jesus advocate for us? What is he saying to the Father? What what is his case? Well, jump down with me at verse 2. John explains there. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So what's John saying? What's what's Jesus' case before the Father? Jesus pleads his own blood. He's saying, Father, when I was on the cross, I absorbed all your wrath for their sin. You can't punish them again. You can't cast them out. I've already atoned for their sins. This word propitiation, it means that Jesus has absorbed all the wrath of God for everyone who repents and believes in him. My pastor, uh, Randall Breland, once um, used this illustration. He said, it was like the floodwaters of God's wrath were coming to justly destroy us because of all of our sin. But Jesus was like a sponge. And he absorbed all the wrath of God for our sins on our behalf. 
Jesus pleads to the Father and says, I've already absorbed the wrath. I've already taken the punishment. And not only this, but he's also the propitiation for the whole world. Now, some of you theologically minded in here um, might recognize this word in, in conversations with the extent of the atonement. Um, if you'd want to discuss, with the, discuss that, I'd, I'd love to converse with you afterwards. I'd love to have that uh, conversation with you. I think uh, I'd submit to you what John is getting at here, though, is Jesus' sacrifice is of such an, uh, he, he has redeemed all those who have put their faith in him from every tribe and every nation across all of history. Everyone who has repented and believed, Jesus has saved them. He's propitiated that wrath. All those from across history, from every nation, tribe, and language will be around the throne Worshiping the Lamb. That's how Jesus pleads for us. Father, I've taken the wrath for them. This is how Jesus maintains our fellowship with God. So we look to Jesus, not our own strength, for our fellowship with the Lord. So by note of application, maybe you're here today. And you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. You've never repented and believed. Friend, if you will put your faith in this gospel, that God sent his son out of love for the world, right? Propitiation isn't uh, pleasing a bully God. It's not God being a jerk. This is the only way that God could justify sinners. So God out of love, the son out of love for us, Father sends the Son. The Son lives a perfect life of obedience and models for us how to live with the Lord, how to be obedient to God. And yet, He then, after living a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins so that you could have fellowship with God. He died, but He rose again three days later. And He ascended back to the Father and he reigns there as the king of creation. And he will return again to collect his saints. To finally and ultimately usher in his kingdom. To right every wrong. To punish every sin. To bring justice to every evil. Establish his kingdom and perfect righteousness. If you believe in this gospel. Jesus can cleanse you from sin. He can give you fellowship with the saints. Give you fellowship with God. So I told you today, um, my parents and I, we got off on a rocky start. Um, but as I as I grew up, uh, by God's grace, I just had instilled in me the necessity of obedience. I need to obey my parents. And so as I grew, my parents and I, we didn't clash. We didn't have friction. We enjoyed a wonderful relationship of love and warmth, and my childhood is one of smiles and joy. And as I grew older and I got into my high school and teenage years, I grew in my appreciation and understanding of what obedience is. I grew in my love for the Lord. 
thus I grew in my love for my parents. And so today we have a wonderful relationship. I love and honor and respect my parents. And as I've moved into adulthood, they have only shown me love and respect. Friends, this is what the Lord Jesus offers to you. To all who would repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Will you close with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us fellowship. Though our sins separated us from you, and it was lost by our forefather, Adam. Lord, you have, throughout the Bible, been paving the way and the path of redemption for us to re-enter into relationship with you. Not by our works, not through legalism, but by trust in the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. So, Father, continue to make Jesus more precious to us. Increase our faith that we might follow you in obedience and enjoy fellowship with one another and fellowship with a good and holy God, enjoying him forever. Amen.